Last week, we celebrated Easter together. And we looked at the resurrection through Psalm chapter 13 and Psalm chapter 16. And today we're going to bring our attention to one of the post-resurrection meetings with Jesus. Specifically, we're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. And we're going to consider Jesus' meeting with Mary Magdalene. That's John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. And while you're turning there... Allow me to remind you of the preceding events. It was Thursday evening, April 6th, AD 30. Jesus had come with his disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. It's what we now know as the Lord's Supper, or sorry, the Last Supper. It wouldn't be long where Jesus would receive a kiss of betrayal from Judas And the religious leaders and Pharisees would come to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying and they would arrest him and charge him with blasphemy. He was taken to the Sanhedrin court where a sham trial took place and Jesus was convicted of blasphemy. But the religious leaders had one problem. That is, under Roman rule, they did not have the authority to kill Jesus. And that was the one thing they wanted more than anything. So they quickly whisked Jesus away in the early hours of Friday to see Pilate. Now, Pilate saw that Jesus was innocent of all charges, but he was a political man. He knew that he was responsible for keeping the peace of all the region. So he caved and he pacified the religious leaders. He condemned and sentenced Jesus to death, but not any death, A death reserved for the most severe crimes and the most heinous criminals. Death on a cross. Jesus was taken early the hours of Friday morning. He was scourged. He was taken outside the city walls to a place called Golgotha. Place of the skull. His body was hung to the cross and he was erected there on that hill. Jesus' death came sooner than expected. At roughly 3 p.m., April 7th, 30 A.D., the lamb who takes away the sins of the world was slain. Joseph of Arimathea went and requested Jesus' body from Pilate, which Pilate agreed to. He took Jesus and placed him inside of his newly carved tomb. Friday turned to Saturday, and all was quiet and still in the city. Saturday turned to Sunday, and everything seemed to be the same, but nothing was the same. Mary and the other women went to the tomb early that morning to care for the body of Jesus, but to their great surprise, the stone had been rolled away, and the tomb was now empty. They all returned back to the place where all the disciples were, and they had told them of these things, of the empty tomb. So then everyone returned to the tomb, and when John and Peter looked in the tomb, all they saw were linen clothes neatly folded in the place where Jesus' body had once laid. God the Father had vindicated the Son and accepted his offering for the sin of man by resurrecting him from death to life that very day. But at that point, standing outside the tomb, Jesus' disciples did not yet fully grasp what had taken place 
those early hours. I submit to you that the main point of Jesus appearing to Mary is so that she might see the risen Lord and believe. And I also submit that the main point that this text is in our, in our scripture, that John records it, is so that we too can see the risen Lord and ourselves believe in what he has done. So would you please turn with me to John chapter 20, 11 through 18 while I read. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She said, supposing him to be a gardener, she said, sir, if you have taken away my Lord, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Will you pray with me? Father, we have gathered like Mary to see your son whom you have raised from the dead. When we give you thanks. Jesus, I thank you for that you care for the least of us, not willing to pass us by and leave us in our despair. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus in this text. Help us understand. Enlighten us. Help our hearts and believe and continue to believe. These things I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The crowd had left and the disciples had gone back to their respective places. They saw the tomb. It was empty. Just as Mary reported. It even says that Peter, as he left the tomb, went away marveling at what happened. Now, he was marveling not necessarily because he knew and understood all the events that took place, but he was marveling, wondering what had he even seen? What did take place? I think this was probably the sentiment of all the disciples at this time. A little bit of perplexity. But in that perplexity, they all returned to their places, and yet every, except for Mary. Mary remained at the empty tomb. Verse 11 says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary, like all the other disciples, did not yet understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. Mary came not to see the risen Lord that day, but instead she came to see the Lord lying on a table, lifeless. She came to anoint the body of Jesus. The burial practice in the in first century Judea is rather different than our burial practices today. In our context, when someone dies, they're often taken to a funeral home where their body is prepared and preserved. Then their body is placed inside of a coffin. Others will come to pay their last respects and to show their love to the family. And then the body is taken to a gravesite where generally a hole is dug and the body will be lowered in place. 
The body will be committed to the ground. The dirt will be put over. And that's where the body is to stay undisturbed. But during Jesus' time, the body was quickly prepared, rapidly prepared and anointed. And then it would be carefully wrapped in linen cloth from head all the way to the toe. And the ground there in Jerusalem consists of sedimentary limestone and dolomitic limestone. That proverbial rock and hard place that you may have heard of, may find yourself in from time to time, it turns out that's the ground beneath Jerusalem. Digging permanent graves there was not feasible. So instead, what they would do is they would carve out a tomb from that limestone. Sometimes there would be larger tombs. Sometimes there would be smaller tombs. Sometimes people could enter into the tombs. Other times it was just small enough to where the body would be placed in in a tomb covering it to seal it. The family may even come by to visit to either anoint the body to visit or simply to make sure that the body still remained there and grave robbers had not come through. Then the body would be left inside of this tomb for about a year, long enough for all of the flesh to decay and all that would be left were the bones of the body. The skeletal remains. Then at that time, the family would come. They would gather up those bones and place it and put it in a place of honor. The tomb was not a permanent place, but it was a place for about a year. And then it could be used over and over and over again. And that's why we hear that this is a new tomb that Joseph had, and it had not been used. You could go through this multiple times with all of your loved ones, placing it in this tomb, and then bringing their bones back out. So after Jesus' burial inside of Joseph's tomb, Mary had come to anoint Jesus. But of course, as we read, his body was not there. And no person should have removed it there. The year had not yet passed. So of course, all Mary wanted to do was care for her body. And assuming that someone had taken his body, she wept. In all of our passage today, we read about Mary weeping or being described as weeping four times. And as she came near the tomb, she bent over and she peers into the tomb. And what does she see? She sees two angels sitting in white, one at the head and one at the foot. Where Jesus' body had once laid. Now things inside of this tomb, they are far from normal. This was not what she expected. Earlier in verses 5 and 6, when Peter and John looked into the tomb, they didn't see angels. Instead, all they saw were the clothes that were just wrapped up sitting there. Now, it's unclear whether Mary even realizes that she's seeing angels or not. But to her, either way, Mary seeing those angels do nothing to change her countenance. They could do nothing to remove her grief that her Lord was missing. We now read for a third time that she was described as weeping. She's inconsolable. The angels even ask her, why are you weeping? And Mary's response is recorded. She says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have played him. Mary is devastated. And you can sense her anguish because she continues to think, where is his body? Nothing will console Mary until she has Jesus's body. She wants to care for his body. She wants to anoint it. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to learn from Mary's witness. In her heart, all she wanted to do was serve Jesus, for she loved him greatly. She was devoted to him. 
When all the disciples had left, it says that she was one of the women there at the crucifixion, present as he died. She was also there as Jesus was buried. And now she's present at the tomb that is empty. Her heart's desire was to serve him. And we have to ask, does her heart describe our heart? Do we, are we like Mary to where all our heart's desire is to be with Jesus, to serve him, to serve his church, to serve his bride? What is it that stems up in our heart? Is it to serve others or to serve ourselves? Is serving others a hindrance in our service to ourselves? I think we would do well to consider what is the posture of our heart. Is it similar to Mary's? Her love for Jesus drives her to serve? Or do we just not care that much? Focused on ourselves, wanting to serve ourselves. But at this point, Mary still does not yet grasp. She's not yet convinced of what has happened. She still thinks that someone has taken away Jesus' body. Now, there's something intriguing that's here, and there's even a little bit of irony. In John chapter 2, verses 19, before Jesus' arrest, death, burial, and resurrection, he tells the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, when Jesus spoke these words, everyone had thought that he was speaking of the temple, and they thought, how can this be? It took 46 years to build this temple, and he thinks he can raise it in three days? But of course, we know that's not what he was referring to. He was referring to his own body. Now, the Pharisees being paranoid somewhere along the line figured out that Jesus was referring not to the temple, but to his body. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 27, the religious rulers, the Pharisees go to Pilate and they say, hey, we remember how this imposter said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, they asked Pilate, Please place guards at the tomb so that way his disciples cannot come in and steal his body and claim that he has been raised from the dead. Pilate agrees and says, you have guards, go guard it. So that's what took place. The guards went and they guarded the tomb. And of course, once Jesus was raised, the religious rulers went and paid the guards sums of money so that way they would spread a lie. They would start a conspiracy and say that, yes, Jesus' followers and his disciples did go and steal the body. Matthew says that that myth, that conspiracy, at the time of his writing, was still prevalent. Many people still believed it. And I think, though, that it's not just something that was believed during Matthew's time in the first century. I think it's a myth that's even believed today in some form or another. You can ask someone with historical knowledge, did Jesus exist? Did he live and did he die? And they'll answer, yeah, he was a historical person. You can watch the History Channel. They'll have specials. Make up all sorts of things about Jesus. Especially with Jesus and Mary Magdalene. False. Many false things. Boy. But here's the thing. Ask that same person, did Jesus rise from the dead? No. No way. That doesn't happen. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, I don't draw attention to this, this irony So that way we can get our clubs and we can beat up on the disciples for not yet understanding what had taken place. This is not that sermon. And I encourage you to never go there. 
Sometimes it can be people can get frustrated in their hearts and they can say about the disciples unbelief or their misunderstandings. Haven't you been paying attention all along? Can't you just figure it out? Are you stupid? I don't think we should ever go there. Not when we read scripture. And we should not shame unbelief if for no other reason we don't want to judge ourselves. For those that believe Christ, there was a point in time in which we did not believe in the resurrection. Now, we may have thought that Jesus' body was stolen. Or, as some is the case, we may even say that, sure, his body was resurrected. But that does not mean anything to us. It may mean absolutely nothing. And he certainly wasn't Lord because I wasn't changing my life how I lived before. The thing is, for Christians, we only believe because the Holy Spirit has revealed these things to us. Not because we are smart, not because we're smarter than the disciples. Therefore, when we approach the text and we see unbelief there, we should have a humility and compassion towards them. And this also goes towards those that we witness to. We don't get angry. We simply present the gospel to them. We speak with compassion because we know that there's a time when we did not believe. A time where we did not understand the things of God. But God was kind to us, not to leave us in our unbelief. Just as he was kind to Mary, not to leave her in her misunderstanding and unbelief. Verse 14, if you will. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Still weeping. Now this is the fourth and final time that we'll read about that. She turned and did not recognize Jesus, the very person she was looking for. She thought he was just a common gardener there. So Jesus asked her, why are you weeping? Mary gives a similar response to what she gave to the to the angels. And consumed with her grief, she did not see or recognize Jesus. After all, it was Jesus whom she was looking for. Now, I want to put forward two reasons that I think could be why Mary did not see or recognize Jesus. First, after the resurrection, Jesus received a glorified and perfected body. He received an immortal human body. Death would not touch his body again, only once, and that was it. Now, we read in the Gospels, Jesus actually resurrected other people from the dead. But in every time that he brought people back to life, their appearance was not changed. They were recognizable. Now, the reason that is is because they would decay, age, and, want, and die again one day. They had not yet been given immortal bodies. They had not been given new bodies. So I put forward, that's one reason why. We do not know the degree in which Jesus' physical appearance had changed, but we understand that it had changed in some ways. Second, as one of our elders said, sometimes grief is blinding. To the point to where we don't even see Jesus. We know this is the case in our human experience. 
We can become so aware of our lowly status, of our problems and situations, that we ourselves are blinded and where we don't even see Jesus is right there with us, present. We can become consumed. We lose lose sight of reality. And if Satan could have his way, we would lose sight of Jesus forever. Mary was certainly grief-stricken. Grief-stricken to the point where she could not, in that moment, see Jesus was face-to-face with her. But the voice of Jesus would soon cut through that grief, cut through that veil of grief, and replace it with belief. Verse 16 says, Mary. And everything changed. Notice, it was the voice of Jesus calling out to her that changed it all. She could now see who he really was. Not a gardener, but Rabbanai, the teacher, the one she had come looking for. Mary had been searching for the body of Jesus, but what she found was far greater because what she found was her risen Savior, alive, no longer dead, but alive forevermore. She was face to face with her Savior. Her grief that perplexed her, was now relieved. Consider how Jesus announces and reveals himself to Mary. He didn't do it through a host of angels in the sky with trumpets blaring. Now, in my estimation, that would have been more than acceptable, quite appropriate to do. But notice what he does. He calls out to her by simply using her name. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are some gospel truths we can hold on to. John 10, 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls them by name. Mary. Mary heard the voice of Jesus in a very personable, in a very unmistakable way. Have you heard this voice of Jesus? Do we hear him calling us by name? Do we hear him calling us unto salvation and eternal life? Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. He says, anyone who comes to me, I will not turn away. Do you hear the voice? Do you recognize it? That tender call unto repentance and joy and life evermore. Oh, my hope and prayer is that everyone would hear and respond to this voice of Jesus calling out. Oh, the sweetest voice. I've spoken much about Mary's love for Jesus, for she greatly loved him. It's evident. But her love for Jesus cannot be compared to the infinite love of Jesus for her. See, our love for God is always a response to God's love to us. It's never the opposite. We see that Jesus' love for Mary, first took place, we read about it, in Luke chapter 8, verses 2. It says that Mary was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus delivered her from these demons. 
Now, we can imagine Mary's hardship. She was demon-possessed. And oftentimes when we read in Scripture, those that are demon-possessed also have all sorts of infirmities and physical ailments that the demons bring by. They lose control of themselves. They do erratic and crazy things. They harm their bodies and they harm others. Mary had not one, not two, but seven demons. In Scripture, this number seven is a sign of fullness and completeness. So when we read that Mary had seven demons, we get the idea that Mary was fully and completely filled with demons. But she was not far from help. Jesus saw her and had compassion on her. And with his authority, he vanquished those seven demons, all because he loved her. No more would Mary be terrorized by demons continually, but she would be continually loved and cherished by her Savior forever. I'm sure there are people that we know in our lives that we look at them and we say, man, the path that they've taken, they seem beyond hope. They've done things to themselves that cause harm, harm to others. And maybe we even feel this way about ourselves at times. Think that we're beyond hope. Think that we've gone too far down this path. There's no point of ever returning and going down another path. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, no one is beyond the grasp of Jesus. Jesus is not fresh out of miracles. Oh no, he has many. And his desire is to seek and save the lost. And he does it to this day. We can look around this room and we can see all the professions of faith, all the people walking with God who once hated the things of God. And we know that Jesus still does miracles today. He's actively saving people. He's saving people like Mary. He's saving people like you. And he's saving people like me. Because Jesus is full of compassion and love. And ever since that time, Mary had been following Jesus. We know during that in that text in uh, Luke 8 that Mary became one of Jesus' financial supporters. That's how Jesus was able to do what he did, was because he had the help of those of his followers. She was present when he was buried, as we noted. She was present at his death. And now she is present with the risen Lord, face to face. I say all this because this reveals the nature of Jesus' love. Mary was not an apostle. She was not named as one of the twelve. She had no special lineage dating back that we should be aware of or take note of. Mary would not become an elder in the Jerusalem church. By many accounts, mostly all accounts, Mary was just an ordinary person. She was just Mary. Mary of the village of Magdala, who was once terrorized by demons. But more than that, she is Mary who is loved by her Savior. Now, I find great hope in that. I don't know about you, but I find great hope and happiness in that fact that Jesus' love extends to nobody's like me, nobody's like Mary, and nobody's like all of us. He's not here for the important, He's not here for the well. But he's here to seek and save the lost. Verse 17. Jesus tells Mary that she is not to cling to him yet, for he has not yet ascended to the Father. 
Now, when we see this text, we might initially think that Jesus is saying, hey, don't touch me. If you touch me, I'm in a perfected state right now, and I've got to go to the Father to seal it before it gets tainted or ruined by sinful humans touching me. But we know that's not the idea at all, because in, um, in Matthew's gospel, we actually see that women actually took hold of Jesus. And later on, in, uh, in, our, in the book of John, Jesus goes to Thomas and he says, put your hands in my wounds on, on my fingers and my hands and put it on my side and feel my wounds. So that's not the idea that Jesus is going after. That's not what he's communicating. Instead, what he's saying is, you can't continue to grasp on to me. You can't hold me forever here because I still have to go to the Father. Another one is still to come. So that's why he's saying, you can't cling to me. It's not that he can't be touched, but he will not stay there forever by the tomb. He's got to go to the Father. As Mary is the first to see the risen Lord, now Jesus gives her a task to communicate to the other disciples. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. What a powerful message that she's delivering. Jesus is with communicating with his disciples that they are now one together. His father is their father. His God is their God. And as you will know, Jesus is not denying his divinity. He's not saying he is less than God. Instead, what he is communicating here is that, yes, he must ascend and go to the father. But not only this, because of the resurrection, because Jesus paying the debts of their sin and rising from the dead, there is now sonship. There is now adoption. Those that were once far off can now be called sons and daughters of God. That's what he's communicating to them. And that truth is given to all who believe today, not just the disciples, but anyone who believes and puts their faith and trust in Jesus will be considered a son and daughter of God. So Mary does what she is told. She goes to the disciples and declares to them the things that she has seen, that she's seen the risen Lord, and she tells them the things that he said to her. Now, it's always a good practice, a good thing to do, and look at a text and say, why? Why does Jesus do what he does? He's always intentional. Every action that he has has a purpose. So he asks, why did Jesus appear after, to Mary after his resurrection. And why did he appear to anyone for that matter? God's plan of redemption required that he suffer, die, and rise again. It did not require that he go and appear to people. So why did he appear? I believe the answer is that he appeared so that the disciples might believe and that we too might believe. Often in the biblical account, Jesus does signs and miracles not because he's required to, but because he wants his hearers and those that see him to believe. And that's why John recorded the story. In fact, that's why John wrote the, wrote the whole book and wrote it down for us. He says in verse 30, 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name you may have eternal life. Jesus appears as his followers, so that they might believe. That's the point of the story. That's the point of the text. See the risen Savior and believe in him. The Apostle Paul, who also had a unique encounter with the risen Savior, saw him and believed. 
And here's what he says about the resurrection and its meaning. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. We've already read this, but allow me to read it again to you. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so that also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each, his own, but each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Post-resurrection appearances by Jesus were unique. But there is coming a day when everyone will see the risen Lord. Jesus at his resurrection was the first fruits. He receives that designation because he is the first of many fruits. He is the first of the harvest of a great harvest. His death and resurrection reversed the curse of Adam. Now, all who believe they may die, but they will rise like Jesus with immortality. We will receive glorified bodies when he comes. And on that day, we will see our risen Savior face to face like Mary. But there's one great difference. Mary was told, don't cling to me. But we will be able to see and cling to Jesus forever. We will not be told, I'm going away, for we will be with him forever. So on that great day, but until that great day, we hold on to this hope of what is to come. We treasure this account that we read today, knowing that one day we will be like Mary. But to anyone who may deny the resurrection, to deny that Jesus did raise from the dead, I implore you, reconsider. Consider the text. Consider the historicity of it. Hear the voice of Jesus calling out to you and believe. You may be able to mentally deny the resurrection during this lifetime, but James tells us there's the second resurrection that's coming. That is the resurrection of all the living and the dead. Those who believe to eternal life and those who do not believe will be resurrected to eternal judgment. That resurrection will not be able to be denied. So I implore you, flee to Christ. Run to him. Allow him to free you from your bondage of sin and death. Treasure him. Enjoy him. And believe in him so that you may have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we have witnessed your resurrection through your word. And we believe your death was a perfect sacrifice. And your resurrection is proof. We have witnessed your love and kindness towards Mary. And we are certain of your love and kindness towards us. We ask that through your voice, through this gospel call, that many people would answer. And that everyone would hear and believe and continue to believe. Holy Spirit, prepare us for that great day upon the return of Christ, when we will see him face to face. May we meet him with great joy and happiness. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.